Um, we're, we're in the book of Hebrews, and I'm very excited about where we're going in Hebrews. And the title or theme today's message is, A New Creation Needs a New Covenant. A new creation needs a new covenant. And one of the biggest struggles that we have in our personal lives, and I see the churches, when I say the church, I mean the Western church as a whole, is they mix the covenants. There's a clear break between the two covenants. A very clear break. And the old covenant is gone. The old covenant of law, the old covenant of Moses, the old covenant of the Old Testament prophets, pronouncing doom and gloom and judgment, that's all gone. We don't sit under that covenant. God has made us a new creation, and with the new creation, he instituted a brand new covenant. And there's a clean break between the two. And a lot of preaching and teaching, in my experience, in the last close to 40 years of being in and out of church, being to Bible school, is there's a, there's a mixture of the covenants. And there's a, there's a very clear break. Now, one reason why it's difficult for us to recognize that is because Jesus' earthly ministry, he taught, preached, and prophesied under the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant does not begin till Acts chapter 2. So a lot of what Jesus did was he not only taught the law, he intensified it. One example would be when he said, you've heard, you shall not murder. But I tell you, if anyone hates his brother, if anyone's angry in his, with his brother, you've, it is written, do not commit, commit adultery. I tell you that if you look at a woman lustfully, why do you just pick, like, say to the men, a woman, right? You know why, guys, right? You've already committed adultery. He, he went to the heart. He went to what's inside of us. And he intensified the law, making it impossible. He buried us under the old covenant. Why? Because he didn't want anyone to have any delusion to think that they could keep God's law. Anyone that's going to trust in what they did and think that their righteousness depends on God's law, when they see Jesus face to face, it'll take about a millisecond for them to figure out that was not God's intention. So the new covenant begins in Acts chapter 2. Jesus teaching, preaching under the law intensified it. That's one reason why we have struggle with forgiveness. When Jesus taught on forgiveness and he said, I tell you the truth, unless you forgive men your sins, you'll not be forgiven. That makes our forgiveness from God up for grabs. But that's old covenant teaching. That's the old covenant. The new covenant, if you look at in Colossians, where it says when we were dead in our sins and trespasses, God made us alive in Christ. He forgave us, what? All of our sins. All. Nailing it to the cross in Christ. Okay. Ephesians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Savior of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who blessed us. Past tense. We're already blessed. With every spiritual blessing in Christ. In him. 
we have forgiveness, redemption through his blood, forgiveness of sins. So when you look at forgiveness in the New Testament, in the way Paul laid it out, it's unconditional. And it's past, present, and future. It's once for all. How do you rectify those two? Well, you separate the covenants. That's how you rectify it. Okay, Jesus taught that about forgiveness once again to show us when Peter came up to Jesus, and he was kind of, I think Peter kind of was like, man, I'm going to impress Jesus. I'm going to show the teacher just how spiritual I am. Jesus, how many times should I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Seven? And he's thinking, man, Jesus is going to be pretty impressed with that. I'm willing to do it seven times. And Jesus went on to say, he said, I tell you not seven, but 70 times seven. And he went on to teach intensified it to where the disciples looked at him and said, well, who then can be saved? They knew. They knew that they'll hate somebody and resent somebody in a heartbeat. But you see what's going on there is Jesus was intensifying. He wanted to put our inability to keep the law in any consistent basis. He wanted to, to put that whole notion to rest. To where he began if you look through the Gospels, he began to introduce the New Covenant in little bits and pieces. They couldn't take it all at once. We can't take it all at once. I tend to see when I hear people's testimony, how they came to follow and then get involved in Alpha Ministries and say, yeah, it makes sense, the grace of God, new creation, dead to sin. Most of us started somewhere in a very conservative setting. And then... When we were ready, God blew the sides off our, our boxes. We all kind of begin our journey legalistically. At least I, I know I did. And I just kept falling flat on my face over and over again to where I was like, oh, this is, I'm, I'm done, Lord. I can't. And God said, all right, you're ready to learn something now. So the new creation, Jesus would, like in Mark chapter 3, you have this glorious statement. He says, I tell you the truth, all sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. He said, all sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. He went on to say, and this is where we get the idea of the unforgivable sin, Michael. I remember I was talking to a friend of mine, and he says, well, what is that unforgivable sin? I said, well, why do you want to know? He goes, because if I know I'll do it. <laughs> if someone's going to do it, I'm going to do that thing. Well, if you look at the whole context of that, we... Look how we just skate right over this great declaration of forgiveness Jesus gives. I tell you the truth, all sins and blasphemies. I mean, sin's bad. But I used to think, man, if, I, if you blaspheme, that's really bad. But he says all sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. There's this glorious, glorious, like, declaration of complete forgiveness, right? And he says, but. And he goes on to say that, but the sin... The blaspheme of the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, not in this age or the age to come. Do you ever think about that when he says, or the age to come, the new age, the new heaven and the earth? It sounds like he's saying people will still have a chance to be forgiven once they pass from this life to the next. I mean, to me, that's what it sounds like he's saying, right? It will not be forgiven in this age or the age to come. So in the age to come, person might be able to say, Lord, remember I committed that blasphemy to the Holy Spirit, will you forgive me for that? I mean, God is so good. 
He's good. His mercies endure forever. So as it goes on, it says Jesus said this about blaspheming the Holy Spirit because they were saying he, Jesus, has a demon. That's the blaspheme against the Holy Spirit is saying, Jesus, you're not the Son of God. You're not the Savior of the world. You're a devil. Anybody do that here? Anyone thinks Jesus is a devil? No. See, we're not, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you've, you, you've passed that. You're, you're way past that whole idea of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So you're, you're completely forgiven. So breaking into the context of Hebrews chapter 8, in 7, he alluded to the new covenant in chapter 7. In chapter 8, he talks about the new covenant. And now the next three chapters, he's really going to separate and compare and contrast the covenants. And it's glorious. Now, chapter 8 starts off, of Hebrews starts off with the point where, the point we're getting to, the point we're trying to make, right? Because he spends all this time talking about this guy Melchizedek, remember? He goes on and on about Melchizedek. And then finally he says, the point we're trying to say is that we do have such a high priest. Because remember, the Hebrews were struggling. The Jewish believers had, they could go to a place and say, I have contact with God now, this glorious temple. They could go and they could bring an animal to sacrifice and say, okay, this is tangible. I see it. I feel it. I'm sacrificing this animal. The high priest is going to go into the temple for me, he's going to sacrifice. We have the temple. We have the high priest. We have things that we see, feel, and touch to tell us we're in contact with God. Things that we can do. Gives you a sense of control over your spiritual life. Now they were told to turn away from everything that they believed and trusted in to have a relationship with God, to turn away from that and look to Jesus Christ and to whom, him alone. To now, to many that were being evangelized, was invisible. You couldn't see him, you couldn't touch him, you couldn't feel him. He was not tangibly here. So they were told, turn away and look to Jesus. Now that freaks them out. The only way we can identify is that God's telling us, look, turn away from everything you trust in your life to make you okay, to make you worthy, to make you feel secure. Turn away from all of that and put your faith in Jesus Christ alone. So they were having doubts and they were saying, but wait a minute. And they had the non-believers that were still practicing the Jewish religion. You know, Johnny comes home to his parents and saying, I found Jesus. And his parents say, wait a minute. What about the temple? What about the high priest? You're not going to go to the temple anymore? You're not going to go to the, you're not going to sacrifice animals anymore? You're not going to, you know, the high priest goes, what, we, what about all those things? And then they start saying, oh yeah, what about all those things? Right? I mean, that happens to us. We find freedom in Christ, and we tell a legalistic believer, and they say, what if, what if, what if? You say, oh. My constant prayer to God about me as a new creation is, as I believe, Lord, help me in my unbelief. I believe, help me in my unbelief. So Paul spent all that time laboring about this guy Melchizedek and how Jesus is our high priest to say, listen, we have one. We have something better, superior. You hear that he starts using that language. 
a superior covenant, a, a superior high priest. And he said that Jesus went not into the heavenly temple, which is a shadow, but into, he went into the very presence of God. Into the, and, and we don't know, we talk about the kingdom of God. Where, do, where are our loved ones now that have departed? I mean, the universe is this amazing thing that is still expanding. And Jesus said, I go and prepare a place for you, right? It's still expanding. Jesus is in God's very presence, and he offered himself as a sacrifice once for all. Once for all time. Now, you're going to see that language. We see it in... in Romans 6, 7, and 8, we see it here in Hebrews, the, the term once for all. In the, in the Greek tense, it's, it's the aorist tense. And what it means is something that began in eternity past is happening now and continues on into eternity future. In the English language, we, we, have, we have what's called the present perfect tense, right? An action that began in the past is happening now and will continue. I, it's, I have been married to Carrie Ann for 21 years, right? 21 years, we're still married, and hopefully we'll remain married until the very end, right? That's, that's the closest thing. But the aorist tense means it happened in eternity past, and we see that language in Ephesians where it says before the foundation of the world, God justified us. It's happening now. So our sins, past, present, and future, have been forgiven. And people have problem with that, they say, well, no, 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 no. The sins I commit now, I have to do something to be forgiven. Well, how many of your sins were in the past when Jesus died? I mean, how many were in the future when Jesus died? All of them, right? How many of your sins did he die for? All of them. See, we think of sins, plural, but sin was the main problem. Our sin nature. And that's why we were crucified with Christ, raised up a brand new person. So, he starts in Hebrews chapter 8 saying we have a high priest and he says he's gone in not into the shadow but right into the presence of God. And he begins to say that the whole law and the old covenant is a shadow. Now think about that. In order for us to see the shadow, what do we have to be turned away from? The sun, right? So if we're looking at the shadow, our performance, right, any kind of legalistic thing that we have to do to make ourselves, if we're looking at the law, we're looking at the shadow, we're turned away from the sun. When we turn to the sun and we look at the sun, the shadow's behind us. And that's where the law, our sins, and all of that belongs. It's behind us. It's behind God's back, never to be looked at again. Now. If you look at what he says in verse 6, so he, he says, listen, the high priest, that problem is solved. Jesus is our high priest. He's in the heavenly tabernacle. He's in the very presence of God. He offered himself. We don't need any more offerings. And he's going to develop that in 9, and especially chapter 10, the sacrifice of himself. So Jesus sacrificed himself once for all, and he is in the holy of holies, the real place, not the shadow. Then he says... In verse 6, he says, The ministry Jesus received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior 
to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises. So Paul's saying, all right, not only do we have a new high priest, we have a new covenant. And look what he says about it. He says it's superior. It's better than the old. He makes a clear break. And then he announces, and John went through this last week, where Paul quotes Jeremiah 31. And when God announced the new covenant that he would make. I'm not going to take the time to go through all that. But look what he says. He says in verse 7, For if there had been nothing wrong with the first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people. Now, this is really interesting. What does God do when he finds fault with you? According to this, he marries you. He married you. This covenant. A covenant is a solemn contract between two individuals. So you have the old covenant, which I believe was man-initiated. The old covenant is how we naturally want to respond to God. It's how we want to. If you look at really what happened there, go back and check it out in the book of Exodus. You had Moses leading the people. And they were being led by grace. Moses was leading the people. God was speaking to Moses, showing the way, going forth. And they, they, they complained. Man, we had food back in Egypt. We don't have anything now. They complained. What did God do? He didn't wipe them out. He sent manna. He blessed them. They're complaining. He blessed them. Manna. Then after they had the manna for all that time, then they started saying, oh, eat this stuff every day. Where's the beef? Right? They were saying, where's the beef? Remember that commercial? Where's the beef? They were saying, where's the meat? We had meat. We don't have any meat. So what did he do? Did he say, listen, I've been, you people are on my nerves. He blessed them. They weren't under law. He blessed them. They were under grace. He blessed them. So finally, the conflict is getting so heated that God is speaking to Moses and God tells Moses, bring the people to the base of the mountain and I will speak to them. God wanted to speak to the people and look what the people say. No, 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 Moses. We don't want to talk to God. I guess, I don't know, is it scary for them? You, Moses, go and you talk to God for us and find out what God wants us to do and we'll do it. And there's a rabbi, forget his name, but he, he basically said that the attitude in the Hebrew language and mentality was bring it, God. Because we're going to keep that law, and when we keep the law, then you'll be obligated to do your end. It was a man-made covenant. As far as I'm concerned, Israel initiated that covenant. God says, okay, you want to do it that way? Let's do it that way. What happened immediately after the law was put into effect? 3,000 people were wiped out. Right? What John read last week from Corinthians, the old, remember the old covenant? Is the covenant of what? Death. Death. Now, on Pentecost, 3,000 people came to faith right away in an instant. So you see the difference? He's contrasting. So, in Jeremiah 31, you know what's really interesting? Is that right before he announces the new covenant, 
And God saved my life one day uh, with this. He threw this right in my mind. In the beginning, right before Jeremiah announces the new covenant, go back and look at it. It says, in that day, it has been, no, first he says, it has been said that a parent eats sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. But I tell you that, that it's not like that anymore, he says. Right? What, is that, what did that say mean? A father eats sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. It's like we always say. Well, I am the way I am because my old man. I'm the way I am, right? That, that, you know, it's my old man's fault. It's my dad's fault, right? Or we have the saying, the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree, right? My wife used to call me apple and my daughter, me tree and my daughter apple. Because <laughs> Grace was, I don't know, she imitated me or something. All, all Grace's dysfunction was mine, right? Mine. So, apple and tree. In fact, we had a little band for a while, the apple and tree players. <laughs> but did you hear what he's saying there? When he announces the new covenant, he says, it, it has been said, there's this saying that children eat sour grapes, the father eats sour grapes, the children's teeth are set on edge. He says, but I tell you, each person will be accountable to me for their own sin. That it's not like that. God doesn't have grandchildren we can have this beautiful, robust, glorious relationship with God one-on-one, -on -one, which means, and God gave me this scripture when my, when my son died and I was blaming myself, it's all my fault, it's all my fault, it's all my fault. God threw this right into my face and said, go look at this. And this big, I mean, a burden lifted from my shoulders because God spoke to me personally. He said, you're thinking that my relationship with your son was through you first and then to him. And John asked me, are you mad at God about all this? I said, no, I'm mad at myself. And John says, that's because you think you're God. Yeah. Right? Ah. Yeah. Yeah, that's what we want to do. Bill Gillum says there's one God and six billion wannabes. Right? <laughs> and then after, after, he, after he announces... The new covenant, at the very end of that chapter, he says, by calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. Verse 13. And what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. So the old covenant, the old covenant of law is obsolete. That is not part of our life. It has no business. Do you know the only thing that responds to the old covenant, the preaching of the law, is your flesh. The flesh is all over that. The new creation responds to the inner witness. The new creation responds to the personal leadership of the Holy Spirit. Which is a process. It's a process of learning to recognize God's leadership in your life. But he's always leading. He's always guiding. He's always moving us forward. Because we're part of a big picture. God has all of humanity on this trajectory towards this bigger picture, this glorious renewal, this glorious new heaven, this new earth, this glorious kingdom of God that he's building now 
but will find its ultimate fulfillment in the next age, where there is no more sin, no more mourning, no more dying. There's no more of that. Now, back in, back in chapter 7, I just want to um, go there real quick because he, Paul, um, Paul introduced the concept real quick while he was talking about the high priest in chapter 7. And he says that um, in verse 18 of chapter 7, after he's talking about Melchizedek, he said the former regulation, meaning the old covenant, is set aside because it is weak and useless. So listen to what he said about the old covenant so far. Weak and useless, obsolete, disappearing, the new covenant better, superior. Which covenant do you want to live under? <laughs> Something that's weak and useless and produces death? And it never, it, listen, no matter how hard you try, it'll never stop. Some of you have heard this story, but I see some new faces, so I'm going to tell it again, so bear with me, Sal. <laughs> Sal and I go way back. Um, one night I, I went to a Sunday night service up in the church that I was going to at New Jersey. I won't say the names to protect the guilty. But anyway, do you know that the guest preacher there was Madden, Madden, Madame O'Hare's son? You know Madame O'Hare, the one, the lady who got, we all hate because she kicked prayer out of school. Listen, I'm a school teacher. As long as there's final exams, prayer is always in school. Don't worry about that, right? But she got, she got prayer out of school because her son, little Billy, she was in school for some kind of meeting and she heard them praying and reading the Bible. And she went and said, eh, there's a separation. And she made a big stink and it went out right and it got taken out. Well, he became a Christian. <laughs> He's a Christian. He's a preacher. And this was back in the 1900s that I went to see him. And he, and he preached on... The, the sin of pride. Like a lot of churches, they do the sin of the week club, right? And they hammer away on it. And then they call you for an altar call, right? So he was preaching about pride and how we had to repent of his, our pride. And I was like, man, I'm arrogant. I'm proud. So I went up, got on my knees, and I prayed, and I asked God, you know. And I got up and walked away. And by Wednesday of that week, I was so proud about how humble I'd become. The flesh never stops. That's how the flesh responds to the law. Fear, guilt, and pride. The only thing that responds to the preaching of the old covenant is your flesh. And it's going to respond in three ways. Fear, guilt, or pride. Now, the pride, the pride you know, there's a guy by the name of Thomas Gray with Grace, Grace International Fellowship. And he, he says, there's three types of flesh. He says, first of all, there's yucky flesh. You know, the thieves, the, the prostitutes, the, the addicts, the junkies. That's yucky flesh. We recognize that. Right? And then he says, but he says, but then there's grade A choice beef flesh. Right? The Pharisee flesh. Right? The Pharisee that went into temple. I thank you, God, that I not like other men. Right? That's the pride. So that's, that's where people that, that are legalistic, they, they get real deluded, right? So the flesh will respond to the law. 
And it's natural. It's the most natural thing. Now, in our lives on a daily basis, we probably struggle with the old and new covenant thinking. The new person that you are responds in faith, hope, and love to the leadership of the Holy Spirit and the preaching of the gospel. The new person that you are. God has made us a brand new creature in Christ. The problem is, as John always reminds us, is that brand new person that you are lives in a sin-cursed body in a sin-cursed world. There's that struggle every day between the flesh and the spirit, between our ego, between what we want, what we think we need, and the leadership of the Holy Spirit. But the only way around that is to put everything, the law, our performance, our mistakes, even our victories behind our back. Because where are we now? Where are we today? Right? Back in the, in the 1980s, there was a big, big push for people's personal evangelism. You should be a personal evangelist. That we should be leading people to Christ all the time, all the time. Right? And shy people, they're not going to do that. They have a different gift. My friend Joe Freeman, that comes, he, sometimes he joins us on Tuesday night. He has the gift of evangelist. He's an evangelist. He'll talk, to, he'll talk to the fence post about a relationship, and it just flows out of him naturally. Okay, he's in um, what they call palliative care now. He's very sick, and he just led the, his new nurse to Christ. He's an evangelist, but not everyone's an evangelist. Right? So in the 80s, there was a big push for that. And then in the 80s, there was this big term, backslidden Christian. He's a backslider. He's backslidden. And one day I looked all over and that term is only used in one place, in the book of Hosea, where God promises he will heal our backslide. <laughs> right? That's the only place it's mentioned. We're not backsliders. We're falling forwarders. <laughs> right? We're falling forward. God is always moving us. Remember, he has this plan. He's moving the whole, all of us, to this trajectory. We're going to sit down at the marriage supper of the Lamb. We're going to see Jesus face to face, just as he is. All will be made new. Jesus has the final say. Now, he knows what he's working together for the good. I'm going to close with a quote from, uh, it's a book called The Pastrix by Nadia Bowles Weber. Some people think like she's a heretic because she's a woman, she's a woman preacher. Her book was beautiful. She says, I finally realized God wasn't trying to make me nice or even good. Instead, what I subconsciously knew even back then, that God was never about making me spiffy. God was about making me new. New doesn't always look perfect. Like the Easter story itself, new is often messy. New looks like recovering alcoholics. New looks like reconciliation between family members who don't actually deserve it. New looks like every time I managed to admit that I was wrong. And every time I managed to not mention when I'm right. New looks like every fresh start and every act of forgiveness and every moment of letting go of what we thought we couldn't live without and then somehow living without it anyway.
New is the thing we never saw coming, never even hoped for, but ends up being what we needed all along. It happens to all of us. God simply keeps reaching down into the dirt of humanity and resurrecting us from the graves we dig for ourselves through violence, our lies, our selfishness, and our arrogance, and our addictions. And God keeps loving us back to life over and over. That's the God we serve under a new covenant. You're a new creation, you're a new covenant. <laughs> you're under a brand new covenant. And there's, there's two types of covenant. I'll, I said I'll quit, but I'm going to go over these real quick. First of all, a covenant is either bilateral or unilateral. Bilateral means two people enter into a covenant. I say, hey, Junior, I'll, I'll give you, you know, so much money for your guitar because I really like your guitar. He says, okay. So he's not going to give me that guitar until I give him the money, right? That's, that's bilateral. We both have our end. In a bilateral covenant, you have to keep up your end. In a unilateral covenant, it's one-sided. One person decides and one person puts into action the covenant and keeps it. That would be Junior saying, hey, Bill, I want you to have my guitar. I'm like, no, I, don't. no, I want you to have it. I made up my mind, that's what I want. That's unilateral. One person is responsible for all aspects of the covenant. Then a covenant is either conditional or unconditional, right? So I give Junior the money, he gives me the guitar case, and I think the guitar is in there, and I get home, right? <laughs> And it was a different guitar. And I say, hey, wait a minute. And I called Junior up and said, listen, you he goes, oh, I forgot or whatever, right? But the covenant's broken at that point, right? It was conditional. It was conditional on him fulfilling his side. Or a covenant's unconditional, right? Only I'm going to do this for you. You don't have to do anything. Now, when that, like, when that happens, right, when someone tells you that, you know, Hey, I realized, do you ever get one of those emails? I realized you're a long lost relative of mine and I'm going to give you $300 million. You just got to give me your bank account, right? I mean, we say that, we know, but when someone, really, when someone really just wants to do something for us out of love, we still don't know just how to handle that. It's unconditional. We still have a hard time believing. God's love for us is unconditional. That means there's no conditions. Jesus couldn't have demonstrated that any better. He was God in the flesh. What did we do to him? We rejected him. The, the, the masses in the end, right, crucify him. They, they lied about him. They put him in a phony kangaroo court. They beat him to a pulp. They crucified him. They played political games with him. And he never stopped loving anybody. They murdered him. And he said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. So... There's no conditions to God's love for you. We try to put conditions on it, but there's none. He proved that. You can murder God, spit in his face, tell him you don't want him. He doesn't stop loving you. That's unconditional. And then finally, a covenant is either temporal or eternal. Temporal or perpetual. Perpetual means it's ongoing, it never stops. A temporal means that at some point, the contract ends. Perpetual or eternal means it never ends. So the old covenant is bilateral. 
It's conditional and it's temporal. Paul said it right here, it's temporal. It's obsolete and it will soon, soon vanish or disappear. It's temporal, temporary. The new covenant is unilateral. God said, this is the covenant I will make and I'm going to do it and he keeps up his end of it no matter what we do. It's unconditional, right? So it's unilateral, it's unconditional. There's no conditions on our side that breaks the covenant and it's perpetual, it's eternal. So that's the covenant we live under. People have a hard time with that. I have a hard time with that, but it's true. God's laying it out for us here. Sometimes people come up to me, you mean to tell me when we used to really get a hold of grace, you mean to tell me, you know, you can do whatever you want? I'm like, yeah, I'm doing what I want. What do you want to do? So bad that you think the law is going to save you from doing it. <laughs> what are you doing? Right? Someone told me once, a guy said to me once in the class up at Safe Harbor, if I take an M45, I accept Jesus right now, but then I say, oh, I don't like Bill, and I blow your brains out with a 45. Does that mean I go to heaven? I said, well, what do you mean? He goes, well, then somebody shoots me right away. I said, do you want to shoot me in the head with a 45? <laughs> no. Well, then what are you even asking that question for? See, there's always this clown that appears when grace is, a, you know, grace is preached. There's this clown that comes out of nowhere. Hypothetical, sorry, I, this is what I call him because it's alliteration. Hypothetical Harry. Right? It's this guy that, like, he, he accepts Jesus and he goes and does all these heinous things. And you mean to tell me? Who is this guy? I never met this clown. What I see people is new creations struggling to figure out how do I walk this out, what's happened inside of me, each and every day. Remember, it's messy, it's clumsy, but God is going to get us there. Come hell or high water, he's going to get us there. Amen. Because it's his plan, he's the covenant maker, he's the keeper of the covenant, and we get to come under that covenant and live free as his children. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank, you that thank you again for listening. If you want more access to Alpha Ministries teaching, you can like us on Facebook, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and visit our website. All times and dates for services and other events are on our website listed in the show notes. 